Amen. Amen. Please uh, turn with me in the forms and prayers. Lord's Day 12, page 213. Continuing on the points of who Christ is, as summarized in the Apostles' Creed, we come now to his title that Jesus is Christ, which is just means anointed. It means anointed one. And so we see that right there in question 31. We'll read uh, together and we'll say the answer together. It's a little longer, but we'll say the answer 31 together and then question answer 32 again. We'll say the answer together. So we begin with question 31 on page 213. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Then question 32 but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. It's the confession we hold in common. Let us turn now to the very word of God. First Peter chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. This is page 1,294 in the ESV Bibles under the seat. 1 Peter 2, we'll read verses 1 to 10. And we'll be really zooming in on verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 10. But we'll read verses 1 to 10. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we begin our reading at verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So far the reading of the Holy Word of God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Goblaki Tepe, the Great Pyramid and the Nap of Hawar. I think I said that last one correct. Now these are three structures. One is a home, one is a tomb, one is a temple. They are in very different places, many hundreds of miles from each other. They are very different sizes, but they all have this in common. They are all structures made mostly of some kind of stone, which have existed since long before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they're all standing, one of them had to be you know, dug out of the ground, but they're all standing in relatively good condition, at least uh, two of them. And the third one, you can still see all of what everything was and, and where everything and what everything, where the structures were and the beams and all these things once you buried it out of the ground, dug it out of the ground. So what is, what is, what is the point of this? Well, there are, there are many buildings that are still standing, some in better shape than others, that were made before the birth of Jesus Christ, and they're still standing because they were made of one kind of stone or another. A stone building is a solid building. A stone building makes you think of permanence. It makes you think of a strong structure. Well, this is, this is part of what we're getting at. This is part of the uh, great picture with kind of pictures upon pictures because it, it's all pointing back to the one who is the living stone. But this is, this is the image of our text, brothers and sisters. We are not just to be any kind of house. We are to be the stones that make up a stone house. And a, that stone house is a spiritual house. It is God's house. It is his church. It is those who worship him. And so as those who are called to be the many stones that make up that structure upon the cornerstone Jesus Christ, uh, we, we have that image, that picture of our text, uh, which 
which brings us also to and is related to in the very language of the text with the word chosen, chosen and precious, a chosen race, which, which relates to being anointed, being appointed, being called out for a special thing. And so our theme tonight is this. Following the anointed one, Christ Jesus, live out the purposes that you are anointed for. And we look at anointed to serve, anointed to teach, and anointed to reign. Those are our three points tonight. So first, anointed to serve. And what does what does anointed mean? It's not a word that we use every day, but we can put it simply this way. To be anointed is to be chosen for a special task. It's to be chosen for a specific or special task. And so we see that language of choosing, which is closely related to being anointed, in our text. First, it is applied to Christ. Christ is the one who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone chosen and precious. And so we begin with the anointed one. And uh, then we're reminded also that to be anointed and to speak of all uh, of all of us being anointed in Christ doesn't mean we're all called to exactly the same thing. There's a difference between an anointing and the anointing. There is a difference between Christians and the Christ. And so uh, Christ is anointed even in a special way, a precious way, a foundational cornerstone way. Uh, but that language of chosen, of being anointed, is right here in our text, even as the anointing of Christ is especially seen in one moment of his life, and that is when he was anointed, appointed, baptized, when he was baptized and the uh, Spirit descended like a dove from heaven and the voice of God the Father called out, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But then we move from the Christ, the one, as question answer 31 says, ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit. We move from the Christ to Christians. And we have also that language of choosing, which again is the basic meaning of of being anointed. We have this language also in our text now in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. We are the chosen ones chosen ones. We are the anointed ones, anointed ones. We are Christ's Christians. We are chosen for specific tasks. And so uh, as uh, Jesus is the only one who was chosen for the task, he is the only high priest we will not have the same task as him. He's the only high priest. He's the only one who can do the high priestly work of giving up himself as sacrifice for the sins of others. There is not only the high priest, there are also many priests, and that's who we are. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are chosen priests. We are all anointed in that way. And so now we, we ask, well, my task is not the anointed one's task. I don't have the holy priest 
the only high priest of God dying on a cross for others. I don't have that task. What is my task? What is my sacrifice? Well, brothers and sisters, at this point, let's turn first to Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 18. And we're going to turn to one other text. We're going to look at two very specific things that are that are detailed and called part of our sacrifice, part of our offering as Christ's priests. The first very specific thing is this, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. The apostle says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what is one of the sacrifices that we give as Christ's priests? It's, it's giving. It's a monetary offering to support kingdom work. In this case, it was the offering from the church in Philippi that supported the labors of the Apostle Paul in various places. That's one, that's one specific way that we are Christ's priests. Let's turn to one more very specific uh, text Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where we read this. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then here's one specific thing which is included in that sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what's another way that you and I are called to be Christ's priests? It's to confess his name together. Saying the Apostles' Creed together to confess his name. It's the sacrifice of praise, the praise of our lips in songs of praise to God. That is one of the ways we're called to be Christ's priests. Now we have uh, we have very specific language. We also have very broad language in the New Testament, and one of those places is the very next verse in Hebrews: "Do not neglect to do good." It's not necessarily giving a specific instruction. That's broad language, right? Do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then one more text, and, and here it, it becomes even much much broader and farther reaching. It's not one specific thing, giving an offering, another specific thing, singing a song of praise. It's our whole life. And that's the language of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or, some older translations say, your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what is, what is our priestly work? It's, it's uh, God's people gathered together and singing praises together. It's God's people gathered together and giving, giving offerings for kingdom work. It's also your whole life. Specifically, when you set aside sins and do not walk in confirmation, uh, in, in 
conformity to the ways of this world. And so every time that you walk in God's will for God and fight against sin and do not walk in the ways of this world, you're doing your priestly service. You're doing your priestly service following, now we go back to the chosen one, following the chosen one, the only high priest, the only one who lived perfectly his whole life, leading up to the one special task that no one else could take, the very offering of himself for our sins on the cross. But again, brothers and sisters, our duty is broad and far-reaching. And so now if we, before we move to our second point, if we just think briefly about the duties of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament temple, they did things such as the sacrifices. They also did things like cleaning the temple, cleaning up all the blood and dusting all the dust and making sure all the articles of the temple were in good shape and presentable. Brothers and sisters, your your offerings and singing praise together week by week, this is part of your priestly service, but also what we might consider more mundane tasks from day to day or what is not so mundane, fighting against sin every day. These also are part of your priestly service. Well, let's come to our second point, anointed to teach. And we see this uh, specifically in question answer 32, that we are anointed to confess his name. And it's also stated very uh, explicitly in our text in the middle of verse 9. You are chosen so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we're not all called to teach in exactly the same way. In our morning series, we're, we're working through 1 Timothy, and we're reminded that the office of elder has, in a special way, to be qualified to be able to teach. And then when we get to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, we see that even within the elders, uh, there is a distinction, especially those who labor in preaching. And then as we think of the greatest teacher, the one called rabbi, the rabbi, the one who, uh, question 31 summarizes it, is our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Well, that is only Jesus himself. And so, yes, it is true, we are not all called to teach in the same way, but we do all have a calling to teach in this sense, to proclaim who Christ is, to proclaim what our hope is in him. This is where Peter will go in uh, the next chapter in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In this way, we are all anointed to teach. We must all be ready to speak of the hope that we have in Christ, of our personal hope, of the way that Christ has saved us, lead us, leads us, that he is my Savior and my Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins. Now, brothers and sisters, 
exactly how to do this is not always easy. It is, uh, it is a question of wisdom uh, when to speak to a family member who has already heard us speak. It is a matter of wisdom when we wait for the question, which is how 1 Peter 3, verse 15 is written, or when we take the opportunity to speak the gospel before the question is asked directly. Those are all matters of wisdom. And indeed, while it is certainly possible for us to be too silent, it is also possible for us to be filled with unnecessary guilt as we second guess when and where we could have spoken and how and uh, where we should have been more gentle and winsome. It's, it's possible for us to, uh, to be buried in guilt and second-guessing as we consider this high calling that we all have to be ready to speak of our hope in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let us always remember this, that we are not anyone's Savior and that we are not our own Savior. But the reason why we would want to speak is because of the excellencies of what Christ has done and the excellencies of his own mercy for us. What's the end of verse 10? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And at this point, brothers and sisters, let's think about the the illustration of our text. And at this point, perhaps the, the great... Uh, pyramid is not the best image. We should we should think of a, of a stone building where the most jagged edges have been taken off, but the stones are not perfect squares. They're they're kind of layered together and pieced together. You know what kind of stone building I'm I'm thinking of? That's the kind of stone building we should picture from our text. And where do those stones come from? Those stones come from from the ground. They come from the cold, dark, dead ground. And that's who we are. That's who we are in our sins. We're not only in cold, dead darkness buried under the ground, we also have all kinds of sharp and jagged edges. And what what does God do? God goes and he queries us. He takes us out of that buried darkness and into his marvelous light. And then what does he do? He takes off our sharpest edges. He takes off our, our, our jagged, rough edges, not to make us all exactly the same. I love, I love how the English pastor Michael Bentley said this. We are not like mass-produced bricks. Listen to this this quote from our brother. Quote, God does not mass produce his children, nor does he expect them all to perform the same kind of service. End of quote. What does God do? He takes us. He takes us out of darkness, out of the dead, buried earth, and he takes us into his marvelous light. He makes us living stones. 
He takes off our jagged and sharp edges. And then we're not all exactly the same, but he pieces us together into his strong spiritual house. All our, all these different stones, we all have our own shape, our own place to serve, our own place to be set as part of that building, all set upon the one precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the foundation and savior of us all. And he says, here, here is your place. And here is what I have queried you for. Here is what I have shaped you for. To be individually mine. No one rock is going to look exactly like another even after it's been chiseled and taken the rough edges off and all of that. Not, not to be, uh, you're still unique. You're still uh, my own precious son, my own precious daughter. But here's your place. In a bigger building my spiritual house to be my people. This is, uh, this, is a, this is a wondrous image that God has given to us of how He has saved us. Oh, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so we repent of our, of our darkness, of our sin, of our rough and jagged edges and we rejoice to be taken out of the dead earth and shaped and placed into Christ's building upon Christ our cornerstone. Well, brothers and sisters, we have one more point. Anointed to reign. Anointed to reign. In our text, we see a number of Ways the truth that God is our King. For when we're called in verses 9 and 10, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, you are now God's people. Those are, those are words that speak to us being a nation, speak to us being a kingdom. And so it points us back to Christ, the King of kings and our King. And as the catechism says it, Christ is our eternal King. Uh, now, the text does not say so much about the fact that we are kings, but it does give us uh, one clear indication of that, and that's that we're not just any priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are royalty. We are not the king, but we are royal. We are the princes and princesses of the king. Now, this does not mean, again, that... Uh, that we are the king, that we have the authority. No, there's all kinds of ways that we are still subject to a number of authorities while on this earth, and that's uh, that's really the theme of First Peter chapter two, starting at verse thirteen through the middle of chapter three. Uh, but we are royalty, and especially in the earth to come, this will be visibly evident in a number of ways. Uh, consider uh, how Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 34, that all of his people will inherit the kingdom. That's what princes and princesses do. They inherit the kingdom. Or how about the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, which is he's, he's, he's looking forward to the time to come. This is contrasted with while you're on this earth. But in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
We are princes and princesses, and our authority will be especially evident in very visible ways in the time to come. There is even some way that we will be involved in giving judgment on the final judgment day, even if we don't know exactly how that's going to work. We are royalty with certain measures of royal authority under Christ himself. Now, how do we begin to be God's royal people on this earth? Because usually when we think, you know, kings, queens, princes, princesses, we think of, we think of like palaces and throne rooms and, and glamorous things. Well, the first way that we are called to be kings and queens is not, is not such a glamorous picture. It is this. It is to rule sin in our own hearts. It is the first way that we're called to be God's royal people. It is to rule the sin in our own hearts. That's, that's where it starts. We will inherit the kingdom. Our royalty will finally be reigning with Christ over all creation for eternity. And we'll be the judges under the judge on the judgment day. There's, there, is, there is much to come, but our royalty, our anointed place as princes and princesses begins with the call to rule over the sin of our own hearts. We are indeed those who are to be called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or here is uh, the language of question answer 32. We are to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. Now, it doesn't sound the most glamorous. Right? When I say the first way that we're called to be kings and queens, the first way that we're called to be God's royal people is to rule over the sin of our own hearts. Well, that's that you know that that the image of that is not you know a great throne room and and uh, and, and royal garb. It's that it, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but it is in God's sight a awesome thing when people rule over sin. Let's let's consider how God's wisdom says it to us. God's Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 32. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Because ruling over sin in our own hearts, it doesn't sound as glamorous as, you know, inheriting palaces and castles and owning cities and and uh, and being of royalty in such visible ways but it is a wonderful thing it is this proverbs 16 verse 32 whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Brothers and sisters, as we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, we will inherit the kingdom. We will rule over this earth. But while you are yet on this earth, learn to rule the sins of your own heart.
and that is a better thing in God's sight than ruling a city. And so, brothers and sisters, you are the anointed ones, anointed ones. You are Christ's Christians. So follow the King of Kings. Follow the great rabbi. Follow our only high priest. And live out the calling that he has given to you. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, may we indeed live